with more books available than ever before, it's becoming even harder to filter through all the noise to find an author and series that you can put your trust in. Through author interviews, audio sneak peeks, and personal reviews, we provide you with the information you need before you take a chance on your next adventure. Join us every month as we highlight an independent author and the worlds they've created. So sit back, relax, and welcome to the Indie Author Prologue. Hello, and welcome to the Indie Author Prologue. I'm your host, T. Norman. On this month's episode, we'll be talking with Jeffrey Kohanek. He grew up in rural Minnesota, where comic books sparked his young imagination, inspiring fantasies of heroes with superpowers, saving the day. His taste later evolved to fantasy epics featuring unlikely heroes overcoming impossible odds to save worlds born from the writer's imagination. Now residing in Southern California, Jeff uses that imagination to weave tales of engaging characters caught in fantastic plots to inspire young adults and the child within us all. With that, I hope you enjoy the interview. All right, so welcome, Jeffrey, to the Indie Author Prologue podcast. Uh, excited to have you here and joining us on this journey. I want to start off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did this writing process start for you? What was your motivation? What inspired you? Okay, uh, first off, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Um, happy to be here. Uh, I guess for me, I, have to, I look back at my childhood and you know, for as long as I can remember, I've always had a desire to create. And, you know, I, as a kid, I fulfilled that in different ways. I would draw, I'd even create my own comic books. And then later on, uh, you know, it, it was, whether it's art or writing or home remodeling or building things, whatever it was, you know, I've, I've always been somebody who, who wants to create and I, I get a lot of personal reward from doing that. Yeah. Um, then about five years ago, as my kids were nearing the end of high school, I found myself with spare time I just didn't have before. So mm. I decided to leverage the creative writing courses I had taken, you know, years earlier in college, and I began to write. And I actually kept the write the writing secret for a long time, for like six months before I even told anyone in my family. Um, and I had a book ready to publish before I told anybody else outside the family. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's kind of funny cause it, at first I was just writing and I wasn't sure what was going to come of it. And then as it began to take shape and I, I realized how much fun I was having with it. I also realized I want to keep doing it. And, yeah. um, so yeah, I'm having a blast doing it. And, and honestly, if I look at inspiration, it just comes from reading, fantasy novels for my entire life. You know, I, I started probably in junior high or even earlier grade school with Narnia books and uh, just kept going. Right. And so it's, it's just a culmination of all those yeah. things. I can definitely relate to that. Um, when I started out writing, I didn't tell my family either. And I, I completed the book before I even told them about it. I was very nervous. I don't know why I was, but I, I really relate to that part of your story for sure. 
So with Eye of Obscurance and the fate of Wizardoms as a whole, what kind of inspired you to write this story? Where did it come from? Like what kind of set up this entire world for you? Okay. Um, you know, so there are many fantasy series that I love, uh, but the one that is still my favorite um, is Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. Yeah. I really just, I wish there could be more books in that world uh, because I love the characters and the setting and just mm -hmm. the, the, just how he put it all together. Um, so accordingly, I, I set out to write something similar, uh, but I also love Matt Cawthon the most. He's my favorite character in Wheel of Time. And I wanted this roguish thief character to be kind of the central character so I could get more of that type of, you know, um, um, dialogue and, and interaction in my books because yeah. that's what I really enjoyed as a reader. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing is Wheel of Time, while, while it's awesome, it's kind of it, – it's – it shows some age because back in, you know, we'll say the nineties and two thousands books were just massive, you know, fantasy books were massive. And I think that the, the publishers wanted them to be padded. They wanted them to be yeah. okay. One book is going to come out like every 18 months and it's just got to be massive. Keep people busy. Well, that slows down the pacing. Uh, so what I did is I'm, I'm giving it my, my modern pacing, the way I write all my books um, but telling the same type of story. And, uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And so far it's, it's been great. I mean, I'm having a blast writing the series. Well, I really enjoyed it. I, I was sucked right into the story and just, I am excited to keep reading and see where it goes with your story then and creating this, I think I know the answer, but I just want to ask you as well, what came first, the plot or the characters? <laughs> Well, I already, I already mentioned Matt Cawthon, right? So yeah. that inspired uh, one of my characters. His name is Jarrell Landish, and he's a thief, but he is actually his – the things that he's done, basically, he's become too famous. So he goes by a different name, just calls himself Jace, uh, so yeah. people will trust him. Um, so I had this clever, arrogant thief who is too talented for his own good, you know, set – firmly in mind um that was the start uh roa who is probably the next main character at least in the first book um she came next and for her i i wanted to have uh somebody who first off she had to be have an acrobatic background um and that kind of set up the first scene in the first book yeah um and that but she has a determined nature and and um, this isn't much of a spoiler, but her, th what drives the plot or, or her motivation in the first book is all, it's about revenge. Basically, yeah. she's lived her whole life. Her whole life's been impacted by this situation, and it's about revenge. Um, then there are others, uh, but for me, the characters came before the plot for the most part, and then it all kind of came together um, at some point. Um, and that, that's just how it works. The story kind of follows these four different characters. They'll have interwinding stories and all of that. So in your view, who is kind of like the main character? Who is the story really about? Is it all four of them? Is it just one of them? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, honestly, the, the first book, it might be more most about Roa. And in truth, uh, she takes 
a step back in the second two, in the second and third okay. books. Um, and and I could tell you that uh, more and more Noreen, who is uh, a wizardess in the first book and the daughter of a very powerful wizard lord, she takes more of a center stage along with um, Jace. So I think those two end up being the main characters for books two and three. We'll see what happens for four, five, and six. But uh, I don't know. I, I, they all play an important part. So you just said that um, you have six books planned. Is that what you originally thought? Or did it kind of just come out that way? How did that process work for you? Uh, I, I guess <laughs> it's kind of hard to say exactly. I think there are six books. Um, I know that <laughs> okay. I have enough story to make six books. Yeah. But I haven't plotted them out in detail, at least for the second half of the series. So it may end up being more. But okay. um, with the main plot I had outlined, I knew I could do at least six. So was it just the content of it that made you want to move away from the traditional trilogy? Or did you just want to kind of separate yourself from the old school publishing, like you said, where it's giant tomes was it just a mental separation or just you had that much content you needed to fit in there yeah i i think uh so part of faster pacing is also having the story beats um or the, the books not being so yeah. thick so it's a 300 page book instead of a thousand page yep. book right yep. well in order to tell a story of the scope i was targeting there's just no way i was gonna squeeze it into three books yeah um we'll see if i can squeeze <laughs> into six um, that's yet to be determined. So tell our listeners a little bit about the plot and the characters and kind of what's going on in the story. And preferably without giving up spoilers, I'd hate to ruin anything. But just give us kind of an overview of uh, book one, where things are, what's going on. Okay. Uh, so the first book in the series begins with this message, I guess, uh, from a character named Salvon the Great. And he's a storyteller in the series, uh, in this message, he's kind of telling the story and he informs the reader that the story is about the end of times. Mm -hmm. And this end begins with a, you know, seemingly innocuous human desire of revenge. But, you know, it, it's more than that, um, as you discover as you, when you start reading the book. But it, the story tells, you know, a tale of four together, four individuals who come together with a scheme to assassinate a wizard lord, which isn't easy by any means because wizard lords have the power of a god. I mean, they can, you you wound them, they can instantly heal themselves. Yeah. You poison them, they can burn poison from their veins, right? They're, they're basically deemed as unkillable um, and they have much stronger magic than regular wizards. Um, and in the story, each character has their own motivation for this murder. You know, for Roa, it's a revenge. For Jace, it's about money. For R Rock, who's a dwarf in the story, it's about a sense of purpose. And, well, Salvan is part of it. Nobody really knows why Salvan does yeah. anything. Uh, the only main character who isn't driven to, to commit this act is Noreen. Yep. Um, but in the end, she finds relief because of the situation she's trapped in, yep. right? So that's that's book one. Um, but I will, it's like dominoes. Book, that act yeah. tips over dominoes that just go off 
and a whole series of events happen in books two and three and four that um that, that it's almost like it's it's chaos out of control and it can't be stopped um as as uh different events occur um and these characters and other characters that that are part of it are kind of trapped in the series of events as wizard lords scheme and try to take over thrones that can gift them the power of a god i could really see in the third act of the book how you were setting up what was to come there were like little subtle hints here and there talking about these people and this situation and i thought to myself that's going to come back in a big way or this is going to be important so it like you said that those dominoes are falling i can tell it as a reader so like i said i'm ready to get into book two and kind of figure out what happens next with all of it so when you wrote this story um what surprised you the most about it um so I've actually been surprised at how fun it's been to write the series. Um, there, I mean, as always, there are times I discover characters doing things I, I don't expect, right? Because I don't, I don't plot yeah. heavily or outline heavily. Okay. I, I just kind of let the characters figure out some of this stuff on their yeah. own. Um, but more often, I find myself laughing out loud as I type. Um, and like with Jace, he's a perfect character um, to have um, banter and dialogue with. So other characters interacting with him, it, it just becomes kind of natural. And, uh, it really, really uh, goes well in books two and three. Um, and that's probably my favorite part is, is kind of the banter and witty dialogue in between all the action and drama and intrigue that, that goes on. Yeah. Now looking at, um, the title of your book, the eye of obscurance, is there any sort of secret meaning behind this or with the cover? Is there anything hidden in there or is it pretty straightforward? Uh, well, the Eye of Obscurance is an enchanted amulet, right? So you, readers discover that real very early in the yeah. book. Um, so, And it's a central item to the core plot. But at the same time, the name, it shares similarities with the, the first book in the series that inspired me, Wheel of Time, which was the Eye of the World, yep. right? So... It's kind of a, a small nod yeah. to Jordan and that series. Um, and at the same time, the cover art, you know, I wanted to show Jace with the amulet mm -hmm. and Roa with her her enchanted fulgur blades and then this mad wizard lord in the background. Um, the, my intent was for it to appear something like an epic movie poster. Yeah. And it, it, here's the crazy thing. What inspired the idea is old posters from the Flash Gordon movie from <laughs> like the late from the 1980s. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> wow. Ming the Merciless in the background and I'm like, "Okay, I want something kind of like that feeling." <laughs> yeah. It's, and the artist did a great job. Yeah. It is a great cover for sure. And uh you mentioned um the Eye of Obscurance, these Fulgur blades that Roa has and there are other kind of magical items within your world that play a pretty prominent part. So what was the decision process behind using all these enchanted items rather than focusing on an individual's abilities? Okay, so um, so the very name of, of the series, you know, wizardoms, uh, that just means that it's these are like kingdoms ruled by wizards. So the wizards, they're, they're like this ruling class. They're the haves. Yep. And everybody else is below them. They're the have-nots. And having enchanted objects creates a way for 
these other characters to become special. Yeah. Right. And it gives, it gives uh, kind of like something for, for people to contend for. So greed drives people to try to capture certain enchanted objects and use them, you know, toward their own, you know, schemes. Uh, so this, the sense of intrigue, sense of intrigue and tension, um, it causes unexpected betrayals. And, and it's also a fun trope. It's kind of like Indiana Jones where he's off to, you know, trying to pursue some relic that's famous or hold some mysterious power. Well, that some of that stuff happens in the in these books as well. Yeah, that's it's such an interesting take because you read a lot of fantasy books that have they have that setup with the haves and the have-nots, but typically their protagonists, their people that like find this deep power within themselves, or they find out like, oh, I actually am a Jedi or whatever it might be. They they find some inner ability that they didn't know was there, but you really set it up where it's anyone could be special because of these magical objects. And I'm sure there's some other stuff going on that uh, is hinted at in the end of the book and will be discussed later, but it, it takes a different route and it uses these items to give the power. So someone really doesn't have to be special to be powerful, which is, it's a cool uh, just twist on what we read a lot and we see in a lot of media. Yeah. To even twist it further, I made it so one character is particularly unspecial. Yeah. <laughs> so unspecial that that it is special. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. You know what I mean, but I don't want to reveal it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Looking at your series as a whole, kind of what's the overarching theme through all of it? Um so in this book, revenge is kind of the it it seems like it's an obvious theme, but if you if you pay attention to all the characters, really they're they're all working for their own selfish greed. Um, everybody wants something in the story and they pursue it with a focused effort. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, as a twist, I make perhaps the, one of the most selfish characters in the whole series perform selfless acts now and then, uh, bringing him out of character or, you know, which is, uh, another fun thing. And, you know, like it's about character growth mm -hmm. and, and we can do that in many ways. And this is, this is just another way to do it. Yeah. As a reader, I always, I like to picture these characters in my head. And one of the easiest ways for me to do it is I kind of look, I think about like, okay, if this book were made into a movie, who would I vision as these characters? Have you thought about that at all? If you had any people in mind as you craft this individual, or did you just kind of create them out of your imagination? Where was that from? Yeah, in this case, they would just be from my imagination. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'd love to have the series made into a movie yeah. or, or a TV series, right? But, I, you know, I know enough about Hollywood to, to know that I wouldn't be able to say who gets cast yeah. in these roles anyway. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I just picture them in my head and, yeah. um, you know, and, and they're like slices of me. You start writing oh, yeah. and these characters... They, they come to life inside you and you, you almost, sometimes you don't even know what they are going to do yeah. <laughs> until they do it. It's like they take over. Well, I will tell you that as I read, um, Roa was the one I could picture the easiest. I kind of saw like a Maisie Williams a little bit. I mean, she played Arya in Game of Thrones and crushed it in that, but I know she's also like a dancer and pretty acrobatic. So that's just where my mind went. Take that however you want, but 
that's kind of who I pictured for Roa. That's cool. With your book and with readers, I'm sure people get confused about stuff or they misinterpret things, anything like that. So is there anything about your book that you want to just kind of clear up or help people understand that they might have gotten wrong in their first read, anything like that? Okay. Um, yeah, I guess. So I, I write fast-paced stories, yep. which often means that character development requires multiple books before it becomes really obvious. I mean, how much is a character going to change in the matter of a week or two, yep. right? Um, if that's how long the book um, spans. Uh, but so if readers find themselves a little annoyed by Jace and his self-centered kind of womanizing behavior yeah. in first, particularly for the first half of this book, you know, that will begin to change. In fact, the changes, the change makes him even more fun as it comes about. And I don't want to spoil anything because a lot of it, a lot happens in book two. Um, if you, if you're into book two, you'll know what I mean. I'm not yet. So. <laughs> um, but I'll say that if you read book one and you aren't in love with, with Jace by the end of book book one, you will be in the love with him by the end of book two, or I will like give you your money back because yeah. he is now my favorite character of all time. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think, um, and the readers that I've talked to who have read the book, uh, they, they all kind of say the same thing. Yeah. And that's almost more rewarding. I mean, if you have a character that within one book already has around like a, a change of character and the, they're coming to their own and figure out who they are, what do they do for the rest of the series? I mean, you have to kind of let it take some time. I mean, that's how it is in real life. I don't change overnight. It takes time. Right. So as we kind of wind down our interview here, is there a best way for readers to find you, reach out to you, contact you, anything like that? Uh, yeah. So I have my own author page, webpage, and that's jeffreylkohanek.com. And Kohanek is K-O-H-A-N-E-K. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have you know author page on Facebook. But I'm also a member of numerous reader groups on Facebook. Uh, so if you're a fan of indie fantasy, you know, check out uh, Indie Fantasy Addicts. It's a wonderful group I'm part of. Um, there are others, but you know that I would start there, and you get to hang out with like there's got to be a hundred awesome fantasy authors in that group and there are thousands of wonderful readers as well so i'll link all that in the show notes as well and as a plug i joined the any fantasy addicts group recently and i love it as well it's a great community very supportive even currently right now there's a um, health fitness challenge that they are organizing which i think is really cool for readers and writers um, people that can sometimes be seen as less athletic or more just kind of like sitting at a desk so it is a great community. I will add that in there. Definitely check it out if you haven't. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the interview. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for taking time today to talk. And um, I hope all the listeners will check out your book, check out your works, and um, just follow you along in this author journey. I know I will be. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Hello and welcome back. I hope that you enjoyed the interview with Jeff Kohanek and that you learned something new. As always, you can head over to jntpress.com slash reviews to find my review of his book, Fate of Ob Wizardom's Eye of Obscurance. And after we are done here, you will get a sneak peek into that book as well. 
while you're on my website, you can go ahead and subscribe to my newsletter as well. I am offering up a free full-length novel from there. And please make sure to like, share, and just uh, subscribe to this podcast as well. Tell your friends about it. Let other readers know. Thanks, and hope you enjoy this sneak peek audio. Journal Entry If you are reading this, I am no longer of this world. Looking back, it seems as though my time was brief, so many years passing in an instant. To others, that instant may be perceived as an eternity. It is a matter of perspective, as are most things, good or bad, right or wrong, righteous or evil. Such definitions depend on where your allegiances lie and how you define your moral code. During my living years, I was known as many things and by numerous names. Of them all, I was best described as a storyteller. In that role, I was known as Salvon. Among the tales I have woven during my years, I wish to share the greatest story of all. Please remember, this is my narrative, and it will come from my own perspective, the heroes and villains defined by my own views. Understandably, you might feel otherwise. Every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. This tale is no different. However, where the telling begins is as important as the story itself. That and the art of the telling are the differences between a compelling yarn and one you might otherwise ignore. This story shall not be ignored, for it details the end of times, a rare occurrence indeed. Our tale begins not with our heroes, but with a villain. Yes, the heroes will follow and become the focus of the story, but don't lose sight of the villains. The roles they play are as important as anything the heroes might accomplish. Before I begin, I wish to clarify one last thing. Any tale worth telling is a tale of change. This chronicle details the greatest change ever known, a change involving not just characters or nations, but the world itself. When I am through, Perhaps you will have changed as well. I certainly know I did. Now begins the first act of many. The subsequent acts will feature more lofty pursuits, but the first tile to fall, the one triggering the events leading to the apocalypse, was born from a very simple human desire. Revenge. Enjoy. Salvan the Great. Prologue. Lord Malvorian Ikor sat upon his throne, tapping the ornate wooden arm, while High Wizard Gurgan pled his case. As usual, Malvorian wore the midnight blue robes of Farrowen, secured at the waist with a glittering golden sash of his station. His long, black hair was held in place by the golden headband with a cerulean blue sapphire he had been bestowed a century earlier. I promise, my lord, the report is nothing but lies intended to cast doubt toward me. Gurgan held his hands out, pleading. My loyalty remains as strong as ever. Malvorian watched the man closely. Deep lines around Gurgan's eyes showed his age, as did his graying brown hair and beard. The man had been High Wizard of Elaton for over two decades, a brief reign from Malvorian's perspective. Gurgan also wore a robe in the midnight blue of Farrowin, yet his was secured by a silver sash. 
A thick golden bracelet was clamped around the man's wrist, an adornment Malvorian had never noticed before. So, you deny skimming from your minds? Malvorian's deep voice boomed in challenge as he leaned forward. You do not have a secret surplus used to hire your own army. The accused wizard glanced toward the soldier standing beside him. Malvorian had never seen the man before, but military men came and went. This one was tall, thin, with dark hair and a sharp face. The soldier gave Gurgan the briefest of nods before the high wizard replied. Of course I deny it, my lord. Why would I risk such treason? Malvorian stood, his own gaze flicking toward the shadows to the side of his dais. The man there nodded. It was time to see if Vanda's ability was as he claimed. Empty the room, the wizard lord boomed with authority. He glared at Gurgan. You are to remain, the words came out as a growl. Guards dressed in silver plate armor with midnight blue capes began ushering the wizards, the wizardesses, and the ungifted from the room. It was late, past sunset. Malvorian seldom held court at such an hour, but this was a special occasion. Somehow, word had spread of Gurgan's arrival, something Malvorian suspected was orchestrated by the accused man thinking to use a public forum as a shield. Little did he understand. Gergen frowned. May Captain Danden remain. He is here as a witness and can explain the conspiracy behind this slander. Malvorian nodded. Yes, of course. I have nothing to fear from a worm like you. The throne room doors closed, leaving the wizard lord and the two men standing before the dais alone, the room dark save for the blue-flamed torches to each side of the throne and the moonlight coming through the high, east-facing window. Malvorian watched Gurgen closely. The wizard seemed unaware of the old man lurking in the shadows. Enough pretense, Gurgen, Malvorian sneered. We have reports from trusted sources, men who have been recruited to join your private force. Why do it? Even if you built an army, you cannot challenge my power. Gurgen laughed. You don't know all there is to know, Malvorian. I am a hundred twenty-eight years old, Gurgen, twice your age, yet I appear half of that. Never forget, the power of a god runs through my veins. You have always been arrogant, Malvorian, Gurgen snarled. You expect the rest of us to follow you like cattle and never question why. Your position is not as secure as you believe. Gurgen extended his arm toward the dais, the power he gathered casting an aura around him. A disk of white magic enveloped his hand as the bracelet began to glow. A thread of magic blasted from Gurgen, encircling Malvorian. Coils of silvery light wrapped about the wizard lord and lifted him off the floor. Malvorian reached for his magic, but found resistance, a force wedged between him and the source of his power. He clenched his jaw and bent his will against the shield, applying pressure until it shattered. A rush of magic filled him, the raw energy railing against his defenses, the power of Pharaoh. He held as much magic as he ever had, the tempest threatening to destroy him. It would not, for the power was his to control. Gurgen snarled and doubled his efforts, the coiled magic tightening around Malvorian. 
You think I am unaware of your long life being fed by devotion? I know the power derived from prayer. Gergen's eyes filled with a madness. It will be mine. The coils constricted, biting into Malvorian, forcing him to respond or die. A disk of azure magic spread around Malvorian's fist, the construct forming into a knife of blue energy that lashed out and sliced through his bonds. Rather than falling to the floor, he shifted constructs and solidified the air beneath him, appearing to hover three feet above the dais. You dare defy me? Malvorian roared. Gurgan threw both hands out, but Malvorian wove a shield before himself. The wave of pale energy slid past the shield and struck the throne, blasting it to bits. Malvorian laughed. The high wizard waved his hands, but magic did not flow from them. Instead, a chunk of stone struck Malvorian in the back. His shield faded and he fell to the floor, landing on his hands and knees. His crown hit the dais and rolled off to settle before Gurgan. Magic lashed out from Gurgan and wrapped about Malvorian's wrists and ankles, lifting him again. No! Gurgan shouted. Do it! Dandan, Gurgan's captain, drew a hidden blade from beneath his breastplate. In one rapid motion, the man cocked his arm back and threw the knife. It buried deep in the right side of Malvorian's chest, the impact causing him to gasp in pain. So, the vision was true, Malvorian thought. Time to end this charade. Clenching his fist, Malvorian's magic constricted around the bracelet on Gurgan's wrist. The bracelet burst open, tearing Gurgan's hand to shreds before the bracelet fell to the floor. Gurgan screamed as his magic faltered. Malvorian strode forward, blue snakes of energy wrapping around Gurgan and the man at his side. With a thought and the twist of his wrist, Malvorian lifted the two men off the floor. Many years ago, when he first learned the constructs of magic, he sometimes wondered at the effort required to perform such a simple task. Since attaining the throne, such things were second nature, each spell fed by the power of a god. With his next thought, the blade popped out of his chest and clattered to the floor. It was only then he noticed the blackened edge. The poison struck, causing his body to spasm. Another lurch brought him to his knees. His heart skipped beats, thumped, then paused. Not even you can survive black tear poison! Demented laughter came from Gurgan, the man still suspended in midair by coils of magic. Black tear killed swiftly, leaving mere moments to respond. Malvorian drew on his magic and bent a heat construct against his own blood. It boiled instantly. He then reversed the effect, cooling the blood in a second. The procedure left his body weak and drenched with sweat, but the poison was gone. A construct of repair, fed by his endless well of magic, healed the hole in his chest. He took a deep breath and rose to his feet. Gurgan gaped. How? How is it possible? Malvorian shook his head, taking another deep breath. You know nothing of power, Gurgan. You are a mere mortal as I once was. When a god raises you to his level, you realize the depth of true power, he sneered. Goodbye. Clenching his fist, the coils of magic encircling the two men tightened at the waist, cutting through them. 
The lower halves of their bodies fell to the floor with sickening, wet thuds, the faces upon their suspended upper bodies reflecting shock and horror. Malvorian released his magic and the torsos fell, settling with the men's eyes bulging. Blood oozed from the dissected bodies, Dandan's the deep crimson of an ungifted, Gurgan sparkling with the metal flakes of someone who possessed talent. Malvorian looked back at his destroyed throne, shaking his head. What an annoyance! He walked toward the dead men, bent, and picked up Gurgan's bracelet. On the inside, he noticed the silvery script of an enchantment. The man hidden in the shadows emerged, the hood of his cloak covering his head, as it always did. You did well, my lord. This bracelet increased his power. I have never heard of such an enchantment. I wonder where he got it. Malvorian stared down at the remains of the usurpers. It was just as your vision foretold. He turned toward the old man. How could you know, Vanda? What black magic do you possess? It is not black magic. I was raised by the seers, my lord. Malvorian gasped. The witches of Kelmar, that's even worse. They are simply misunderstood, much like yourself. Nonetheless, you must never mention the seers while others are nearby. True or not, the legends surrounding the sect inspire fear and loathing. That is a conversation I would rather avoid. Yes, my lord. Vanda bowed his head. I will defer to your wisdom regarding your people. It is time for devotion. I must head up to the tower. He waved Vanda along. Come, join me. The pair walked to the lift at the rear of the throne room and stepped on it. Malvorian held his hand against the control panel. Drawing upon his magic, he activated the lift. The crackle of raw energy drove the chains into motion, hoisting the platform. As you recall, Vanda said, your defeat of the usurper was but the first event in the prophecy I shared with you. I cannot forget. Malvorian narrowed his eyes and thought. Imagine my power if I were to extend my rule beyond the borders of Farrowin. You must possess the Eye of Obscurance, Vanda said. It is the only way to achieve a higher station. Malvorian spun toward him in alarm. It is as if he reads my very thoughts. Vanda chuckled. Do not worry. I cannot read your thoughts. I am only adhering to the truth of my vision. The teachings of Pharaoh decry against prophecy, marking it as foul. Malvorian recalled the scripture, reciting the passage aloud. Beware those who attempt to predict the future, for only by evil means might one see beyond the present. Vanda sighed. I am aware of the scripture. The Book of Pharaoh is not the only religious text to proclaim prophecy as evil. The platform reached the tall, domed ceiling of the throne room. A thick wall obscured the view for a moment before the lift emerged into the evening air. The grandeur of Markeith lay before them, the great city lit by torches and enchanted lanterns. Vanda gripped the platform rail and gazed at the moon. I ask you to suspend those beliefs, set your prejudice aside, and consider prophecy in an objective light. In truth, 
prophecy is nothing more than instruction toward a possible future. Following such guidance greatly increases the odds for a specific outcome. In the end, the future depends solely on the actions of man. What you do will affect it. What you forego, well, that sometimes has an even greater impact. Malvorian turned the words over in his head, struggling to find a path beyond a century of belief. The vision I shared with you points toward a future where the Lord of Faroen rises above all others. A wall of stone slid past the platform, obscuring the city before opening to reveal a torchlit room. Malvorian stopped the platform and held his arm out. It is time for you to depart, Vanda. Have a good evening. I will see you tomorrow. No, you will not. I must leave and will be away by the time you rise. Now, when I am on the cusp of a new future, you have what you need. The plan is in motion. The stars will soon align. Malvorian's concern lessened, and he found himself nodding in agreement. Where will you go? I must return to the seers and discover what occurs next. Should you succeed with the first portion of the plan, additional guidance is required. Vanda walked off the platform, pausing to speak over his shoulder. Do you ever allow anyone else in the tower? I cannot. Malvorian placed his hand on the control and the lift resumed its climb. It is forbidden. Remember the amulet, Vanda said. It is the key. Yes. Malvorian's face darkened. Yet subtlety is required. The Enchanter's Guild cannot know I am behind this scheme. Wise words, sire. Vanda's bow was the last thing Malvorian saw before the room was obscured from his view and the lift returned to open air. Gusts of wind ruffled Malvorian's hair and braided beard. His robes flapped wildly as the wind grew stronger, a common occurrence whenever he neared the upper reaches of the tower. The platform stopped upon reaching the top. Malvorian withdrew his magic, lifted the gate, and stepped into the tower's uppermost room. Pillars supported the domed roof, and a throne of crystal, surrounded by a circle of fire that forever burned, sat at the middle. In the back of the throne was a massive sapphire with eight perfect facets, the octogram seated in the crystal. There were no walls, so the wind carried through the space unabated. The magic, Pharaoh's magic, fed the flames and made them immune to the wind, rain, or anything else. During his century of nightly visits to the tower, Malvorian had never seen the flames dim. He had, however, seen them blaze brightly. The wizard lord passed through the ring of fire, but neither he nor his clothing were burned. In fact, the magical flames gave off no heat at all. The throne, his true throne, beckoned. He succumbed to its will. Sitting on the throne of Pharaoh, he gripped the arms, leaned back, and embraced the source of magic, his heart and soul connecting with the gem pressed against his back. Power flowed through him, the throne flaring bright blue. The flames erupted like an azure inferno, and the bell in the dome above him began to peal. Beams of blue light shot out from the tower, connecting the flame to obelisks in each of Pharaoh's major cities, lighting them brightly. Devotion began. 
prayers from the citizens across the wizarddom Malvorian governed. The power of those prayers flowed into the wizard lord, the rapture consuming him as the world fell away.